Welcome to Workforce Rx with Futuro Health, where future-focused leaders in education, workforce development, and healthcare explore new innovations and approaches. I'm your host, Vonton Quillivan, CEO of Futuro Health. One of the attractions of being a healthcare provider is the variety of ways you can make an impact. And our guest today, Dr. Tri Shamasunder, is a great example of that. After training in internal medicine, he specialized in tropical medicine and hygiene and spent several months a year in underserved settings around the world, including Liberia, Haiti, Burundi, India, and even locations around the U.S., including South Los Angeles, for example. What he experienced providing healthcare in the aftermath of the earthquake in Haiti prompted Dr. Shamasunder and a colleague to create the Health Equity Action and Leadership Initiative, or HEAL, at UC San Francisco. HEAL offers two-year global health equity fellowships that trains providers to serve resource-denied populations, and as they put it, HEAL transforms health workers that in turn transform health systems. I'm looking forward to learning more about HEAL and the opportunities and trainings involved in doing this type of work. Thanks so much for being with us today, Dr. Shamasunder. Yes, thanks for having me. So, um, Sri. Let's start by having you tell us your background and what drew you to working with underserved communities, both in the U.S. and abroad, and maybe give us an example of best practices that we can learn from elsewhere and import into our work locally. So I grew up in rural Southern California, probably like 60 miles outside of uh, Los Angeles. And at that time, it was a working poor community in this town called Lancaster Palmdale. And um my father was a, a doctor and he was an oncologist. And I think one of the things that I saw as uh, him being a physician, oftentimes people would come up to us at the local restaurant and talk about the impact he had in in their life. And so I think that was, you know, imprinted on me early. And then my father, actually, when I was six, uh, had a seizure, didn't know he had kidney disease and needed a transplant very soon after. And his sister came over from India and he received a transplant. And, you know, I think early on, I kind of, he had cousins, you know, we have some family inherited uh, kidney disease and he had some cousins in India that also had the same disease in their 40s and uh, ended up dying. And so I think there was this impression of, you know, how much inequity and, you know, the fact that he had access to care, he had access to a transplant surgeon, you know, even at a young age, I started to be aware of the different outcomes between my uncles and and my dad. And then, you know, as time went on, um, I had a chance to spend time, my sister, right after high school, my sister was working in the slums of Bangalore. And I went to visit her and uh, I met a doctor there. And you know, I think that one of the things that was clear to me is that there's so many ways to do impactful work in the world and and change the world. But some of the, the physicians there immediately had the trust of the communities. And it was a way to, you know, early kind of embed yourself in this context where you immediately have something to offer, uh, you know, a resource denied community, a poor community, and then you build that trust. And then you can start to think about ways to change the broader world. And I I think I really felt like medicine was a way that you can easily gain trust in these in these communities that if you're trying to have an impact in the world. And so I spent, you know, a bunch of time as in a Tibetan refugee camp uh, in India as a med student as well. 
And then my residency training, I think for so many of us, it was at the county hospital in Los Angeles. Um, and then it also, we worked at UCLA, which was the, the hospital in Westwood. And so, uh, you know, oftentimes you would see patients in Westwood that were, you know, in their 80s and 90s, and they were dying of potentially like cancer, or, you know, they had uh, ailments that were really with advanced age. And then in the county hospital, oftentimes you would see patients that were, you know, in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and you saw this deep inequity. And oftentimes in the county, they're mostly brown and black patients, undocumented. And so, you know, there's this real uh, questioning for me of, how do I make the most use of my training and also impact patients that are, are struggling the most and, and, you know, poorer patients. And so I think it's a real education of, of the inequities that we see in medicine and how do we go about addressing that? And so I could go on into some of the work that I did in Burundi and Haiti. And uh, a lot of times the international work, um, a lot of the things like your question entails is that there's close proximity to the context in which patients live, uh, especially in the global setting. And oftentimes you're accompanying patients in, in their day-to-day -day lives. We do home visits, so we track through and see, understand how far it is, how hard it is to access some of the hospitals uh, for patients, you know, whether it's transportation, we see the context in which they live. And so you're walking with community health workers. And I think oftentimes in the US, uh, there's this siloing that happens where whether you're in an academic medical center or an FQHC or, or Kaiser, you know, or whatever your setting is, it sometimes feels like there's a disconnect between the, the patients and the context of their lives and the medical facility that we're sitting in. Shri, a question for you. As we see the trend of care moving to the home outside of the hospital, for example, if you're recovering from surgery, they'd love for you to go into the home and it's been shown that you can recover better. I mean, for certain situations. Do you think that intersects with your observation about proximity to the patient and the care that you've seen in you know global environments where there's more trust? Yeah, I think if you can actually deliver care, high quality care close to the home, I think that is the direction. I think the caveat is that can you deliver a high quality of care with all these wearables and all, you know, all the devices that are coming out, you worry that there's going to be a inequitable divide. Like for example, in my house, it has a, you know, pretty nice setup. I can imagine getting high level of care, having a amount of information relayed back to the, the doctor or the providers to take care of me. But other patients that are in settings where potentially there's not caregivers, that that seems like it could be uh, challenging. But if you can shift high quality care to the home, that is a place where patients often feel the most comfortable. And in a lot of settings, you know, in global settings, community health workers that are uh, mostly women that have the trust of the patients, know the patients, are from the community, deliver a lot of the care uh, internationally. And so I think that that shift, you know, it's been a long time coming and we see some trends in California that community health workers are, you know, going to get paid and supported. And I think that's an important trend to watch. Well, well, we'll continue to probe that set of discussion. I'd love for you to talk about how you're manifesting your impactful work in HEAL. Um, tell us more about what HEAL does and how it differs from perhaps other nonprofits that are in this space. 
Sure. So HEAL stands for Health Equity Action Leadership, and it really came out of uh, the work that, you know, me and my co-founder were both kind of raised in um, this organization, Partners in Health, which was started by Paul Farmer and is really has has focused on work in, in Haiti and Rwanda and other parts of the world, including with the unhoused population in Boston. And there's a real focus on understanding the context in which patients live, accompanying them, being proximal to suffering, to social suffering. Um, and so when I first came out of residency, I knew I wanted to do work in resource denied settings. And I started to work in Burundi and Rwanda. And I felt like I was making the same mistakes that, um, you know, I didn't really understand the context. I didn't understand the history of the place. And I kept seeing what we call as stupid deaths in global health, where things that people should not die of, they were dying of. So whether it's asthma or bee stings or hunger, there was a sense that I was failing. I saw so much mortality in that those six months because, you know, I would spend six months internationally every year when I first came out of residency from 2009 to 2014. And we started HEAL because we felt like, how could we accompany people like myself that wanted to work in resource-denied settings, whether it's in the U.S., you know, in poor communities in Oakland or Los Angeles or Navajo Nation or internationally. And then how do we support the colleagues that are there in, you know, in Rwanda and Burundi that are, you know, we often say they're running the marathon. So people like me are, are sprinting. We're there for four months, five months, but the folks that are there, whether they're Navajo and Navajo Nation or in rural Burundi and Rwanda, how do we start a program that really supports their development and growth? And so we uh, started HEAL in 2014, and it really is about training and transforming frontline health professionals to serve underserved communities for life. And so that you know, it requires mentorship, it requires correct curriculum, kind of reorienting um, what medical education or nursing education doesn't teach often. And then really a community around how do we get better at taking care of underserved populations. So HEAL every year is about 25 people. Uh, half of them are post-U.S. residency doctors. A quarter of them are Navajo. A quarter of them are from the Global South. And it's this really incredible learning community where for two years, people are learning, you know, how to better take care of the populations they're serving. They're very proximal to the communities. They're doing clinical work and they're doing project work um, to become better advocates, to become better leaders, to understand what we call as the structural determinants of care, you know, the upstream factors that a lot of advocates uh, talk about that may, what makes people sick, why are uh, my patients getting sicker at younger ages or from diseases of poverty, etc. I'm wondering if you could paint a picture of a behavior of somebody before they start a program and then how they're sensitized and would behave differently after the programs once they've spent some time understanding the structural determinant of cares and maybe adapting their behavior, perhaps? You know, I think that this is the journey that I went on that I think a lot of fellows go on as well is that when you start off, uh, medicine often has a language of blame in in how we talk about patients, right? We talk about not adherent or non-compliant or lost to follow-up or poor historian. Those are very much part of the language of, of medicine where it's a, a very personal failure of 
of patients if they don't get better or, you know, it tends to be a very individual uh, approach because you're taking care of one patient. Oftentimes it's out of context of their entire lives. And so, you know, I think when I was in, in Burundi, I was taking care of a diabetic patient and they were not taking their insulin. I wrote the prescription for insulin, sent them with insulin, and then their sugars were still very high. And so I complained that they're non-compliant, right? But the the fact is like to gain access to insulin or pay for insulin it was several days salary for them to gain access to a a refrigerator so oftentimes in in rural communities they're burying the insulin in the ground because that's the only way it keeps and so you have all these contexts and all these barriers for a patient to have a good outcome from their diabetes um so you know, I think that that context is oftentimes lost on providers in, in medical school or nursing school where they're not connecting the patient to the entire context of their lives. And so, you know, that that's true in rural Chiapas and in, in Uganda. A lot of our providers will say that before HEAL, they often thought of when patients had bad outcomes, um, it was very much a individual responsibility or a, a failure of the individual. And then as they go along and, and heal, it's really connecting kind of the individual to the context they live, some of these these social determinants of health of why, uh, you know, patients struggle. And so, and that allows you, you know, if you do this work long enough, it allows you to become a better advocate and better leader. And so in rural India, we have uh, some folks that uh, finished heal and they work in TB and they see tons of tuberculosis, but they also started a farming program for their, their patients because they realized that all the patients would travel to the city uh, because there was no jobs locally. And when they went to the city, they were much more likely to get tuberculosis. And so in addition to treating the tuberculosis, they started a jobs program, a, a farming program in their local community that connected uh, you know, sustainable wages and sustainable jobs, and the TB rates actually went down. And so I think those kinds of interventions that you see where you are obviously a doctor that's going to treat TB, but you're also going to think about the root causes of TB. That is a really good example to help us understand the power of perspective and how language and, and perspective affects how we problem solve. And I, I wonder, um, Sri, what is your observation of value-based care? And would value-based care actually enable more solutions like what you've discussed to come forth? I think so. I think you see some really incredible innovations in like the Medicare Advantage uh, population, where if you're taking care of a population, people are leaning or organizations are leaning into community health workers, home visits, like there's a real emphasis on keeping people out of the hospital and really looking at kind of the entire context of of people's lives. So we can, you know, we can address complex diseases in the context of people's lives. And then it actually is, you know, if it's done across the whole system, it both saves money and drives better quality care. And I sit on this council for California that's looking at healthcare workforce shortages, Sri, and there's a lot of discussion about primary care teams, especially given the shortage of primary care doctors. So I'm thinking as you talk about home visits and community health workers, it seems like 
there's a whole team that needs to be activated for this concept of primary care teams, right? Yeah, I I think oftentimes we don't learn in teams. Our training is can be siloed, and then now you know everybody talks about healthcare as a team sport, you know, and that is very very true. But oftentimes we haven't been trained in that context. So really, you know, leaning into the skills, especially as as we you talk about getting care closer to home or in the home, uh, having value based care. Really, what is the role of every team member to better deliver that care? And so, um, I think that is something with Heal. Oftentimes, you know, because it's so interdisciplinary and it's also transnational, so many countries, we often have fellows talk about, you know, the level of getting the perspective of the nurses, getting that perspective from the community health workers, how they see the patient care. Those spaces don't often exist. Oftentimes, you know, you're in a group of, of dot physicians talking about patient care or your or nurses are in, in their own cohort and really kind of and and there's good models that that are I think are emerging or or exist. And I, I think those are the things that are also we need to be trained like that because I think oftentimes that's that's not part of our training. Well tell us more about Heal's work with the Navajo Nation in the southwestern US. I understand it's quite an extensive portfolio of work that you have. Yeah, we you know we started working in Navajo Nation in uh, 2014, and so as uh, you may know, there's a 30% vacancy rate in Navajo Nation. So there's allocated funding. So the U.S. government under the Indian Health Service has funding for those positions, but they have trouble filling those positions, and that's true across many. Uh, native communities in Oklahoma and and Florida and you know even in in California where we are where we see this essentially this market failure where there's you know there's a maldistribution of health workforce across uh, different places and so you have this you know centering of workforce in San Francisco and Los Angeles but in places that need it most oftentimes there's money there to support those workers if people would show up and work, but there's not enough of them. And so what HEAL has done, you know, if if me and you were HEAL fellows coming out of uh, internal medicine, you would spend half your time in Navajo Nation, I would spend half my time in, in Liberia. And that one job, instead of going to a temporary staffing company that might have somebody come in for two weeks, that one job is shared by the two of us. And for over two years, we we share that job and that money comes to heal. And we're able to support uh, a Navajo health worker, a Liberian health worker, and the two of us as well. So kind of that one job, along with some philanthropy supports for health workers. And so that way, it's a financially, you know, sustainable, it's not totally dependent on, on philanthropy. And it's filling these vacancies. So over the last nine years, we've had 23 physicians, 33% of the doctors that have signed up for HEAL stay on in Navajo Nation. Um, so the Government Accountability Office has talked about how HEAL is a potentially a solution or one of the solutions to address vacancies in Native communities, right? And so, and at the same time, we've had uh, about 60 Navajo fellows that have come through HEAL and have stayed in the work and have uh, you know, we talk about moral injury, and oftentimes for the Navajo provider, they're in a rural community, they're isolated, they don't have a ton of mentorship, and all of a sudden you're connecting them to this global uh, community where they're learning as well as 
they're having a mirror shown to themselves of like, you know, how incredible they already are to begin with. And so they see themselves as an agent of change. And so you have both of these dual things happening. Um, and two senators uh, from Arizona and Utah also talked about how HEAL should be funded by the U.S. government because programs like HEAL, uh, because we are, you know, having this impact. And so that's really one of the major impacts that we've seen is is the level of vacancies, the ability to have people uh, be retained, recruited and retained in these communities has been important um, as part of our work in Navajo Nation. And then you know, I'll briefly mention that during COVID, because we had had such strong relationships in, you know, in a community that has had historical injustice, uh, a lot of trauma, that level of trust that existed, we were able to really lean in. And UCSF had shut down in February of 2020 because there was this concern of a surge that never actually materialized. And in uh, Navajo Nation, in March of 2020, it was the largest COVID rates in the world at that time per capita. And so we were able to send like 60 nurses over the over four months, keep the respiratory care units open, have relationships with the president of Navajo Nation. And, um, you know, I think there was a real solidarity of what can an academic medical center or, you know, uh, an institution really lean into supporting Native communities and what does kind of that level of solidarity look like? And so, you know, I think that was a, a real impactful moment for HEAL. Well, going back to your story of, of you watching your father in action in the local community, I'm sure he would be so proud to see your impact in all these important communities across the, the country and the world. So congratulations. <laughs> Thank you so much. Let's talk about burnout among providers, because that's been a huge issue and at the root of it for many is what's referred to as moral injury, working in a system in which they feel disconnected from the purpose and meaning and unable to make changes to the system. Tell us more about what you think on that. Yeah, I mean, I think for most of us that have, have worked in the U.S. medical system, there is this feeling that it's fragmented, oftentimes patient care, you know, despite the, the language of patient-centered care, there's oftentimes profit at the center uh, of conversations. And of course, you need to be financially viable and sustainable. But, uh, you know, for a lot of us, we came into medicine with a social mission, really serving populations, serving patients, improving their lives, taking care of poor patients. And you know, medicine is one of the spaces where it feels like we eat our young, where oftentimes the, the idealism that you come in as a first year medical student is gone by the end of residency. And, you know, and heal oftentimes is, is this mechanism to come back to that space where, you know, if you are doing hard things, if you're being an advocate in communities and structures that oftentimes feel like they're not designed to support our patients in in deep ways and in different aspects of their lives, then doing it as a community and having mentorship, I think, can rejuvenate um, and be an antidote to that paralysis that so many of us feel when we're, you know, dealing with large systems and poor patient outcomes. And so I think that um, the moral injury is a huge, you know, when we talk about increasing the health workforce and we increase like the amount of providers in these communities, you are seeing a lot of 
turnover and burnout. And I, I don't think that's an accident because some of these jobs are set up in ways that we're centering, you know, RVUs and we're centering like five minute visits and uh, the amount of volume you can push through. And oftentimes, you know, that doesn't honor the provider and, and why we came into this work. And so I think that that's one of the things HEAL tries to have an impact on because I think moral injury is is uh, now being talked about more and it's really, you know, tied to burnout, but it's really this feeling of uh, overwhelm and paralysis in the context of these larger structures. So Sri, you mentioned mentorship. You mentioned a broader coaching community. Uh, and in a way, there's the affinity with a broader network that's trying to tackle the health equity, but also the systems change. Um, are there other strategies to enable young providers to move along in the career that can help sustain and make the journey go the distance? I mean, I think a lot of it, you know, is is you can't be what you don't see, right? And so, like, I'm sure people that are mentees of yours like to see someone in, in your position doing so many innovative things and potentially having that conversation and being a sounding board is transformative. And so we have, you know, Dr. Adrian Begay is, uh, is on our HEAL team. She's a Navajo uh, doctor, family medicine doctor, spent 21 years in the Indian Health Service and now works with HEAL. And she talks about being in a young, like teenager in Navajo Nation and seeing a surgeon who is indigenous take care of her family. And that was the first time she felt like, oh, you know, I can be a doctor too, or I could be a health provider. And, and I think that level of, of having people that are further along, that are asking the questions that maybe you are, are starting to ask as a young person, you know, about why they're such inequities of care and, you know, how does racism play into medicine and how do I have an impactful career? Like that kind of modeling and mentorship is crucial. And and then a community around that, I think is, and I think a lot of spiritual traditions <laughs> understand this, like, you know, you have to have a, in Buddhism, it's called a Sangha, you know, and in uh, other places, you know, a congregation. And so in health, how do you find purpose and meaning and it's it's with other people and it's with people that are in different stages of the career so i i would say that that level of belonging that so many minorities and underrepresented in medicine don't feel in the health system that level of of belonging is it has been something that i think heal has been able to to have some impact on oh, wonderful wonderful so let's close by giving you the floor to um, answer this question tree what does the ideal future of care look like to you and how best can we get there? <laughs> oh, wow. That's a, that's a big question. I would say that, you know, I'm super encouraged by the level of, you know, like we saw in COVID, there's this incredible technological innovation that happened. We, we all know that the mRNA vaccine came on in record time. And yet we saw these like, incredible mortality rates in indigenous communities in black communities like several fold over you know white communities and and so i think covid was this moment where all of us are simultaneously seeing innovation and at the same time seeing like these structural inequities that are embedded in our system right and so i think in a lot of the incredible 
advancements that are coming, whether it's CRISPR and precision medicine and biologics and um, you know AI, uh, how do we make sure that it's accessible to all patients across uh, communities? And I think we're so far from that, from where I work in, you know, now Heal is trying to grow across rural California. So we're designing our program for rural communities, whether they're rural Northern California or communities along the San Diego border with uh, a lot of refugee and asylum uh, patients. And so that level of care where we, you know, anchor to from a health workforce that there's a strong health workforce that has understands the context, has language concordance, you know, looks like the population we're serving and making sure that the fruits of science really get distributed across um, these populations, because I think that that has often been an afterthought and we've seen that kind of drive inequity. So, you know, in my mind, the future of care like anchors a generation of providers into a social mission of care, which is connecting the context in which patients live. And that's the ethos of which we train and live and provide care. And in that, all the technology and the innovations around delivery of care is informed by that mind state and that approach to medicine. Well, I learned so much today on this podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Shamasunder, for being with us today. I'm cheering you on and all of your works. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm Vontone Quinlevin with Futuro Health. Thanks for checking out this episode of Workforce Rx. I hope you will join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce in America. Mm-hmm.